Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branska. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on March 12, 2019, honoring the work of Will Slaughter, a professor at the University of Paris and former fellow in the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia. Professor Slaughter studies the history of media and publishing, especially during the 18th century, when the newspaper as we understand it today first came into existence. In his 2019 book, Who Owns the News? A History of Copyright, Professor Slaughter studies the history of the relationship between copyright law and journalism, which has always been a complicated one. Publishers and news organizations have historically tried to own the rights to their journalism in the way an author owns the rights to a book. But this desire has come into conflict with the need for the news to be directly copied in order to circulate widely in a reliable and consistent form. Copyright remains a key issue in debates about the future of news media today. Who Owns the News asks whether news is the kind of thing that can be owned in the first place, and how best to protect the public's right to information when news is monetized. First, we'll hear Professor Slaughter discuss some of the key arguments of his book. Then, we'll hear a response from Richard R. John, a historian and professor of journalism at Columbia. Okay, I'm very happy to be back in this room in particular um, and to thank Eileen Galuli and all the staff of the Society of Fellows and the Humanities Center here because this project began in this room. And so I want to take us back to that moment in 2009 in this room. Um, You know, that was a year where there was quite a lot of talk about crisis in journalism and in many ways that crisis has not gone away. It's taken on new dimensions uh, since that time, but some of the underlying problems, in particular financing of original reporting, has not gone away. And so there were a lot of pronouncements about how, you know, basically we're on the verge of a world in which quality journalism could, could disappear if we, don't, uh, if we don't do the right thing. Also in that year, in 2009, was when I noticed that news organizations, prominent ones like the AP, and of course uh, Murdoch's News Corp, and other publishers, talking about aggregation as theft, talking about how new models of disseminating news, this was really, you know, Facebook barely existed and nobody was talking about it. Uh, Social media was not what they were talking about. They were talking about aggregation like Google News or Yahoo News. But anyway, you had this sort of debate between, well, what is, what, what is the web? What does the web enable? What can we do? And if we do it certain ways, might we lose quality journalism? Um, much of the attention was on these aggregators. And in some ways, that's still where a lot of the attention is, even though I think in terms of the news ecosystem, we've, we've moved on from that. And social media is much more important than, than an aggregator like um, Google News. But in any case, as a historian, what really struck me was that, you know, in some ways there's a whole strain of news publishing which is compilation and juxtaposition, or what we might call aggregation. And so this 18th century newspaper called the Grub Street Journal 
which was a satirical newspaper. What it would do is it would take short snippets of news from eight or ten London newspapers, and it would follow a story and give the details that were being reported in each of these newspapers. The difference between the newspapers, even this, this is a sort of coverage of the royal hunt, is very minor, you know, what they hunted or how long it lasted. And that might not seem important, but even for such a mundane, routine story, the Grub Street Journal was pointing out that the version of the news that you got, depending on which newspaper you read, and the fact that they all contradicted each other was made plain by compiling and juxtaposing visually for readers to have an overview. And indeed, this manual form of aggregation um, led the editor to be accused of piracy. And uh, he defended himself against this charge of piracy by saying that the way we are comparing different articles and putting them on the page is actually very useful for the public and might even be necessary to put a stop to the currency of false news. So one way we could think about the history of copyright and the history of norms um, related to copying journalism could be a history of these kinds of arguments and so much of the book is a kind of, there's a strand of intellectual history of the different arguments that are used for and against uh, some kind of a property right in news. From the middle of the 19th century, the news business had changed. Now there was a telegraph, now there were other um, forms of disseminating news, and there was an attempt to create a special copyright in news that early in 1855. And it was you know, vigorously opposed by a lot of newspaper editors who said that, well, actually, if you do something like that, you, you're potentially restricting the flow of what they called intelligence. And so that shouldn't be piracy. So that's one strand of the book, is a history of the different arguments that uh, were used for and against copyright. Another thing that you'd often find in a legal history, but which I kind of, I think, downplay a little bit in my book, is just the basic history of legislation. Um, because if you did look only at the history of copyright as a history of legislation, you might see a kind of chronology, like, well, at what date were books protected by copyright? And then how long did it take before newspapers and news articles were protected by copyright? And if you look at something like that, it looks like it's a history of either an inevitable expansion, at which point everything eventually becomes a, a kind of a intellectual property, or it's some kind of a history of delay in which we need to understand why news articles were protected so much later than um, uh, books. So that's part of the story, too, is, is actually recreating the various attempts and the, and the different legislative um, attempts over time and, what, and how people oppose them. But I wanted to move beyond that. I wanted to include also a history of copying and a history of news that would look beyond uh, just the legislation and the cases, to strategies of publishers. And, and here, one of the main lines in the book is the way in which the, the, the main subsidy that, that financed journalism for so long was not copyright. It wasn't you know, a law that said you couldn't copy. It was the ability to use news to attract advertising revenue. And this, in a way, is what, what made it possible to make money publishing news, even though news has always been very easy to copy. So I trace sort of some of the, the basic components of that going back to the 18th century. We've just got an example of a typical 18th century newspaper where once you look closely at it, you see it's made up of all sorts of texts copied from 
uh, other publications, also some original material that was collected locally, but it was really this collective work, this miscellany, that was bundled together and um, sold to customers with you know, up to a half of the page space being, being advertisements that really explained the profitability. I also wanted this to be a history of editorial practices, like the cultural sort of work of doing uh, working with newspapers. And you have up here an image of this delightful scissors editor. For most of the 19th century, on both sides of the Atlantic, this was the main uh, sort of image of newspaper work, was an editor with a pair of scissors and a pot of paste. And it was because, literally, this was a step that you would take if you were going to create a mock-up of the next day's paper. You might take some of the material from a newspaper in another city, clip it out, add some new local material, and so on. And on the right, you see that the American Antiquarian Society had a lot of these newspapers that were used by editors in the 19th century. And you can see where some of the cutouts have happened. And it, there's a legacy of that, because if you look on the digital version, that's been sourced from that library, that, that pole is still there on the digital <laughs> version as well. And it's because somebody, in order to find it, you have to go and find the editor which, which copied it. So editorial practices in addition to legal history and uh, business history. Um, this newspaper work during much of the period I'm studying is, is one in which news is treated largely as a shared resource. And here you have this a quote from a London editor in 1835 said, you want to put a copyright on news, but, but we're all copying from each other on the very day of publication. And, and readers know this, and it doesn't stop them from buying the newspapers. In fact, it may be what enables us to do our work. Um, now, a lot has changed since 1835. Journalism became a profession. The business models have changed, and so on. But I would argue that copying still remains absolutely central. The, the best uh, analysis I've seen of this is not for the US or the UK, but for France, where an economist named Julia Caget worked with um, computer scientists and built a database of every news article published online in French in the year 2013. And this is not aggregators. These are major newspapers like Le Monde and Liberation, all the radio stations which have their own news websites, um, pure internet players that just produce journalism online, when they ran plagiarism detection software through this database, they found two-thirds of French news articles in 2013 were pure, copied, and pasted. If you expand that to include like things that are reformulated right, or slightly reworked, it would probably be much higher. So one of the reasons that news has been is hard to protect through copyright, and one of the reasons that so many of the struggles in my book are, are ongoing is because the, the main commercial value of news comes from publishing it immediately and the time advantage that is, is gained by being the first to announce the news. And so a lot of the arguments that, that news publishers make that I recount in my book are about this time-sensitive nature of news. And I would argue that for society, it's also the value of news, the social value, is also time-sensitive. And so I try to look at some of the ways in which you know, news was consumed and shared in different environments um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially. Well, today, 10 years after starting this project, a lot of the issues haven't gone away, as I've said. Uh, as we speak, the European Union is putting the final touches 
on a new copyright directive. And this copyright directive has a special provision for news, which has turned out to be one of the most controversial measures in the whole package. And a lot of members of the European Parliament have said they've never received so many calls or emails about something as obscure as copyright. They didn't expect this. And in watching this debate, I found that it's been extremely <coughs> polarized politically. On the one side, you have publishers who claim that we need stronger copyright to protect journalism, that this would be the way of, as they say, a sustainable and free and pluralistic press in Europe, which is endangered by American social media companies and American tech companies. So you have on the one side of this, if you believe in a free quality press, support this stronger copyright. And on the other side, you have organizations as you know, reputable as the International Federation of Library Associations, the IFLA, saying that this Article 11, this special copyright for news, is a threat to an informed and literate society. And what I see as a historian looking at this polarized debate is that copyright has always been very politicized. And copyright has always masked you know, underlying rea realities which are much more complex. It's not just about being for or against quality journalism. It's about taking a closer look at how copyright actually works and how the business of news actually works. So I think I'll end there. Next we hear from Professor Richard R. John, a historian and professor of journalism at Columbia University who specializes in the history of communications, technology, and business in the United States. He is also part of the core faculty in Columbia's Department of History. In these comments, Professor John shows how Professor Slaughter's book highlights the historical contingencies that led to newspapers dominating journalism in North America and Britain. He also discusses the significance of commerce and institutional frameworks other than copyright in the development of news media, and surveys Professor Slaughter's contributions to related scholarly fields. Will Slaughter's Who Owns News is a Who Owns the News is a beautifully crafted, tightly argued, and morally engaged contribution to small but growing literature in the political economy of news, public information, and the American world. In the few minutes I have this evening, I'd like to comment on it in the context of the history of journalism, as it's understood, not only at the Columbia Journalism School, where I teach a core course for our MS students every year, not only in that context, but also uh, in the context of history, media scholarship, political, uh, political sociology, and political theory, uh, who specialize in the history of news, so two different groups. Let me begin with what I take to be the received wisdom narrative at the Columbia Journalism School. Like most professional programs that are designed to train the rising generation of journalists, Columbia Journalism School emerged in uh, the early 20th century. We celebrated our 100th anniversary in 2012. and emerged in a world in which it was taken for granted that, that is to say, in 1912, which the newspaper had always been and would always be the primary medium for the circulation news, newspaper-centric project, Joseph Pulitzer, the world. Uh, until he was the benefactor of the journalism school. Until quite recently, these assumptions bore at least some relationship to reality. 
Uh, as recently as around 2000, maybe more recently, depending upon which study you read, a high percentage of the most consequential news stories, often as high as 80 percent, uh, that end up in television or radio or social media originate as newspaper articles. Right? So the news is coming from a relatively small part of the news ecosystem until quite recently. And, and this always startles my students. It just happened on Monday. The peak year for advertising revenue for U.S. newspapers was 2006. Okay, so there was the going up until 2006 and it falls off. Facebook starts in 2004. Thus, it's not perhaps it's perhaps not so surprising that for decades journalism students have been taught how to write newspaper articles, a task they learned boot camp style. Uh, in the most famous course of the J School until recently, RW1. We abandoned RW1 just about, I think it was three or four years ago. And in such a world, it wasn't entirely bizarre that journalism history was newspaper history. Journalism history was newspaper history. The history of magazines, radio, and television kind of shoehorned in where they best fit. Kind of journalism and mass communication kind of reflected that. It's a very strange world to be teaching and researching in because the field has no intellectual coherence whatsoever. Journalism and mass communication basically meant newspapers and everything else. Well, slaughter shows just how time-bound and indeed how parochial this narrative was, Britain and America, two countries that provide the evidence for this study. And it makes a lot of sense to study Britain and America together if it does, it does so well. Now, why is this? Why is it so parochial? It's no, by no means inevitable that in 1700, the newspaper would be the primary news medium. And in fact, the newspaper would not become the dominant medium for, sell, for selling news until the middle decades of the 18th century. That's a long time after the printing press, right? So mid-18th century, then maybe to, what, 2005, 2010, wherever you want to put it, 19, cable news. Long run, but just over two centuries. The rise of the newspaper was more or less coeval with a number of quite specific events, including the opening of legislative assemblies to reporters, which happened in Britain in the 1770s, the United States in 1789. The Constitutional Convention was in private, off-bounds, and it was widely assumed that had the proceedings been public, had journalists been present, uh, the movement to draft the Constitution would have failed. And we're even skeptical of this, whether there were reporters at that time as opposed to Journalists. Journalist is an older category than a reporter. We often associate beginnings of reporters with this kind of reporting on legislative assemblies and then on courts. So that's one thing, contingency. Uh, in addition, the newspaper in Britain and America was closely linked, Slaughter shows so well, to two institutions that aren't really directly connected to the creation of news. Narrow. That is to say, first, advertisers, and second, the postal network. Many early 18th century English newspapers have post or mail in their title, and the same was true in the United States. It's not self-evident that advertising and the postal system are going to be so central, but they certainly are in, in Slaughter's story. Now, Andrew Pedigree, in his a Splendid Invention of the News, has written about certain aspects of this story. As Will knows, this book, among its many virtues, is, is a beautiful tour through Foot in the footnotes to all the literature on this subject that you need to read, including pedigree. That's a fine book. 
The pedigree stops in the 18th century, which is more or less where slaughter picks up steam. He doesn't say he doesn't have a lot of interesting things to say about the 17th and 18th century. The real strength of this book is the 19th and the 20th. All right. So let me say something about the origins narrative. Three things. First, there is no pre-lapsarian, pre-commercial moment in the history of the Anglo-American newspaper. This is a mistaken assumption baked into Habermas's structural transformation of the public sphere, a title that revealingly, and I, I think it's, it's good riddance, does not appear in Slaughter's Index. Um, <laughs> and and the, this assumption is, is an unfortunate legacy of the viscerally anti-commercial Frankfurt School, of which Habermas was a member. Okay, so there is no pre-commercial moment. There's a lot of, if you actually start looking at the Spectator, which is about as far back as you can go with um, Habermas's commerce there too. That's why. So it's commerce from the beginning, and it, as, as Will showed so well, it's this odd bargain that you're paying a high percentage of the newspaper Revenue is coming from advertising, yet we think of it as news, and the two are together, and it's not self-evident that they've been joined. They were joined along together, and now they've been ripped apart in the last decade. Okay, that's the first. No pre-lapsarian moment. Second, the rise of the newspaper owed nothing to copyright, a legal instrument that had been increasingly looked to as a panacea for news, as, as we'll show, in recent decades. And in particular, following the 1990s, there's been an effort by AP and other groups to enlist historians, to become crusaders for the hot news doctrine and such. I've been in that position myself. It's very strange, um, but it's there. And, and this is a real, it was so well displayed in the, in the slides. Slaughter's history of copyright is, in this sense, a history as much of paths not taken as opportunities pursued. Um, and some of the recent work of Heidi Twork is very much in a similar spirit. Project after, it's fascinating to study project after project, all these hopes, all these aspirations, and yet they're all kind of fail. Because for slaughter, other mechanisms, including the barriers to entry devised by news brokers, a topic, a topic that Jonathan Silverstein Globe explored in uh, a monograph, I think much more important. And these include some to our own horn, but as Will's horn too. We explored some of these in a book called Making News, uh, where we talked about the institutional arrangements that help to sustain journalism, often non-market institutional arrangements. But there's not copyright. There's a bunch of other things. News doesn't pay for itself. You have to have institutional arrangements to pay for the news. Copyright's not the answer. Okay. So that's the second point. The first is about commerce, second about copyright, and the third is that he dismisses as spurious, I think quite properly, the overly broad claims, this is getting in the weeds, that legal scholars sometimes advance for a 1919 Supreme Court case, International Legal Service versus Associated Press. That's a subject in his last chapter. It's a very appropriate subject of the chapter because that's, a, that's an important and much discussed case. In his view, this case was, and here I quote, quote, really about protecting the cooperative arrangements of the AP Associated Press, at a time when its membership was restricted and newspapers did not yet face competition in using breaking news to sell advertising. And it, it has to do with trade uh, norms within, what you're talking about, trade norms within the field. It, it cannot be the basis. In fact, the justice who wrote that decision is one of the most obscure justices in the history of the Supreme Court. You cannot 
he's not Brandeis. You cannot use this ruling for much kind uh, of purposes. It's been asked to be used for a reason. The larger context of this ruling, and I'm going to his monograph, as he correctly notes, is, quote, larger and ongoing discussion about how to fund quality journalism. Certainly with my journalism school hat on, that is a major concern. I should be pressing concern for citizens. Larger and ongoing discussion about how to fund quality journalism. For news, as Slaughter astutely notes, needs, and that's an interesting verb, news needs something. News needs to be treated differently from other kinds of, create, of human creativity. And that those needs, or this argument about these needs, includes a cultural argument that news does not seem like a product of authority, it's a cultural argument for these needs, and a political argument that exclusive rights would restrict public access to information. Okay, that's the reason for these needs. I guess I'm almost getting to the 10,000 feet here, but that's where Will takes us. And I want to return to that question of needs at the end. Slaughter's reference to this larger discussion about, about news funding takes me to the second topic, which I'm just going to speak about pretty briefly, and that's the relationship of who owns the news to scholarship on the news by historians, media scholars, political scientists, and sociologists. Now I'm going to just kind of located in, in kind of a larger landscape. Uh, Slaughter's approach, as I read it, most resembles, and maybe disagree, Sam Lebovic, Heidi Torek, Jonathan Silverstein Loeb, Michael Stamm, Victoria Gardner, Andrew Pedigree, who decenter news by locating it in the broader political economy. Slaughter's careful attention to language is particularly important here. This is one of the fascinating aspects of this book. Terms like piracy, property, copyright, even news are by no means self-evident. And as Slaughter notes, they have metaphorical significance that older newspaper-centric scholars often overlook. Once upon a time, journalism historians thought they knew what they were talking about when they talked about news, and we no longer are so confident. The First Amendment, though it is mentioned, it's not a cornerstone of Slaughter's account, I applaud that. Neither is the English Bill of Rights, although there are important changes in the first quarter of the 18th century. Britain. On the contrary, like these other recent historians, he's sensitive to the institutional arrangements that journalists operated in, and in particular to their possibilities and limitations. Right? There's a larger political economy or ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. You don't just start with the newspaper or with the news item or with the report. This is not a media-centered book. Media scholars, I suspect, will find Slaughter's book a revelation. A lot of things surprise media scholars, and should. Um, particularly what has to do with what actually happened in the past as opposed to what they think occurred more than 10 minutes ago. With a few notable exceptions, and I'm thinking here of John Derome's exemplary media and public life, this scholarship lacks historical depth and is preoccupied with simple-minded policy fixes in the United States until quite recently. The, the, the most the most daring radical move of media scholars was that we should have a BBC-style national news infrastructure. In other words, it was the federal government had a key role in provisioning of news. We'll see how that turns out. Uh, and and that those, these fixes overlooked the myriad ways in which governmental institutions and civic ideals have long shaped the news. There's a reason the Brits have BBC and that we don't. And it has to do with a lot of practices, institutions values. 
And that brings me to the simple point that Slaughter's book makes so well, is that the creation and circulation of news has always been regulated. Always been regulated. Notwithstanding First Amendment platitudes and all the portentous platitudinizing about master switches. We're all in Slaughter's depth for providing us with such a detailed analysis of just how it worked, just how it worked. What were these institutional arrangements? That's quite the value of this book. So that's media scholars, who I'm not entirely enthusiastic about as a group. <laughs> Historical sociologists will find Slaughter's account more congenial. No. And Paul Starr had Who Owns the News at Hand when he wrote The Creation of the Media. I'm confident he would have been able to seamlessly integrate Slaughter's findings into that fine book, which is the best history we have, given the scholarship he had at his disposal on the political economy of, of journalism, or the media, as he calls it. So I wonder, this is a question, would Slaughter's narrative lead Starr to make different arguments about constitutive choices. In other words, are there different constitutive choices, different key points, now that we've got slaughter, that Paul Starr would say, aha, got it wrong, got to change that chapter. I don't think that's the case. Because they have a similar, and I might be wrong, because they have a similar sensibility. For slaughter, like Starr, has little patience with the technological determinism that shapes so much literature on the regulation of New technology, Slaughter writes, and here I applaud, says, quote, cannot by themselves explain when and why people have lobbied for new legislation or gone to court to stop others from copying. Right? It's not a question of new media changing everything overnight and therefore regulation follows. There's a tendency to treat the history of media, political economy, as you've got a new media, and then the regulators, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And then they scurry around to come up with a patch. And then another new media comes about, and they scurry around <coughs> to come up with a patch. I can name books that follow that basic form. And it's wrong, it's misleading, and it's not something that you could, I think, easily believe if you've read Slaughter seriously. But I think Slaughter, I think Star, I would agree with that, as would, by the way, my colleague Michael Shudson, the world, Shudson, rather, the world's foremost sociologist of news. So this is, this is going to fit in with literature and sociology. Now let me say something about political theory. Political theorist John Keane uh, is a great student of what he calls monetary democracy. And he would presumably applaud Slaughter's rejection of copyright as a solution to the myriad problems confronting news providers today. Copyright is a bad idea, Slaughter bluntly writes. The risks simply outweigh the potential benefits. This kind of morally engaged scholarship, and I'm lifting up Keene here, he's morally engaged in a monetary democracy, which you need an awful lot of information for deliberation. This is badly needed in a field in which lazy thinking has prevailed for far too long, and it helps to link Slaughter's splendid book with core issues in democratic, democratic theory, such as those that Keene writes about. News does indeed, as Slaughter notes, <coughs> need to be treated differently from other kinds of human creativity. This is because news is essential not only to Keynes' monitorial democracy, but also to commerce, public life, and indeed the, con the conduct of daily affairs. So one takeaway from Slaughter's book is that there was never 
a marketplace of ideas in the past in which news somehow created itself, produced, distributed. This troubled me. I'm teaching in contemporary civilization. We had an expert in on Mill. And the expert was trying to convince us that Mill believes in the marketplace of ideas. Mill never uses the phrase the marketplace of ideas. In fact, what he describes is not a marketplace of ideas. It's really something really quite different. Yet if we call it a marketplace of ideas, and we talk to the future as the marketplace of ideas, what we have done is we have just become part of the lobbying arm of Facebook and Google and the other big corporations. The same is true, I would say, of a lot of discussion about fashionable doctrines um, in communication policy, and I won't name the one that I'm particularly troubled by. The institutional arrangements that made possible the creation and the circulation of news have always presupposed a particular vision of the good society. That's evident in Slaughter's book. It's clear on every page. And it's said, I think that's one of the ways in which it's going to be assimilated into the literature, and a number of literatures. And as to this vision of the good society, I believe we should turn. News is as much a human product as healthcare, public parks, or education. And books like Who Owns the News help us to understand not only what to avoid, but also why it matters we shouldn't fall into those traps of the past. I, I really, I mean, uh, these are you know, moving commentaries for me. It's, it's always a really special moment to, to see that you have, re you have readers who are taking your ideas seriously and thinking about the different strands of, of what you're interested in. So I'm, I'm really um, happy to, to be able to just respond briefly. I can't uh, do justice to all of these remarks, but um, I think there's a few things that are really important to, to respond to. Um, one of them is that is the question of you know why almost like it's obvious that copyright wouldn't be the solution. So why are we writing the history of this? And um, Richard also mentioned this is a way, a history of failed initiatives, right? The, 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 uh, the attempts to create a copyright law that would actually work for news never worked. So what, you know, so what's, what's, you know, what's the point, really? But I thought about this many times as I was writing it. And I think that there's, there's a couple things. One is that what seems like the obvious limitations of copyright, maybe to a lawyer working today, um, were not inevitable. And that I think it's really important in the history to reconstruct the fact that, you know, the key sort of achievements or key exceptions, um, not just the most obvious being like the fair use, you know, fair use uh, doctrine, but also this this dichotomy between expressions and ideas or expressions and facts. And I, I try to show that actually it's often cases about news that pose these questions really clearly and actually forced judges and legislatures to articulate what they thought were the acceptable boundaries. And that actually, um, the fact that it keeps coming up doesn't make it any less dangerous. Um, in fact, maybe the lobbyists would eventually succeed, right? Or maybe the, maybe the arguments would eventually work. And so I try to show that these, these resistance to copyright was actually quite powerful in the past. Um, in addition to showing that it, you know, it probably wouldn't have worked either, so I think I think that that if I'm making any contribution to legal history, it's 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 that it's that um, you know looking at the practices alongside the legislation in the court cases shows that um, what people believe copyright to be and what a judge or a lawyer says it is are often 
different things. Um, and so what, what it is doing, I think, what, what discussion and rhetoric about copyright does, is it enables people to make moral and political arguments that have to do with fairness, that have to do with justice, that have to do with supporting a quality pluralistic press and whatever, and it becomes extremely difficult to be on the other side of this question. And I have been, you know, one of those scholars saying, but wait, do you have any evidence that this would work? It didn't work um, in, in previous cases, including very recent legislation in Spain and France. And you've had two or three years now when those, that legislation is existing and absolutely no evidence that it would work. This is not something that any news publisher or journalist wants to talk about because the, the argument of supporting the press is, 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 is crucial to them. And the idea that um, Google and American tech companies are doing something unfair and pillaging. And so that rhetoric, I try to show that that, that, is, that has always been the thing. So, so clearly, if copyright is one form of subsidy, there were other subsidies, as you mentioned, like direct subsidies. Um, uh, there were also the indirect subsidies, like the postal subsidy, um, many different types of postal subsidy, actually. Um, indirect subsidies like tax breaks and you know, special status, nonprofit status for journalistic organizations. There are all sorts of other subsidies that arguably have more of a place. Um, and it doesn't always have to be going all the way to a publicly funded, um, directly controlled journalism organization. There always have been these subsidies. And so that's really what you know, should be talked about rather than uh, copyright. But I think I do think this political and moral aspect of, of copyright is important. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot was said about you know uh, Richard's comments a lot about the kind of business history or more political economy approach that I took, and I think that that's that's absolutely true. Um, in many ways, the transformation from my dissertation work, which was about the circulation of news at a, at one moment was really about reconstructing the practices and how it circulated and how, what effect it might have had. And then, when I started thinking about copyright, I realized that I was looking at policy choices. I was looking at a series of policy choices and institutional arrangements, as he said, deals, um, various ways of, of wheeling and dealing that made a difference. And so that's a, that's a clear difference. So that brings me back to the question about news, and that is what I'll end with, because we need to have time for, for questions and if, if people have them. Um, you could say that I skirt the issue and I say news is just too difficult to define. And that's sort of what I say at the beginning. But then I say also disputes over controlling news often led to new definitions. And that one of the problems in controlling news is defining exactly what it is. Um, I think in my earlier work, in my sort of work on focusing on the circulation of news at a particular moment, my de definition of news would have been, news is a collective textual process. That's a little bit wordy, but in other words, news is not just, you know, some uh, cultural historians have said news is culture, right? It's, it's, it's defined by culture. Um, some have said news is, you know, whatever, you can't wait to tell anybody else. Some would say news like pornography is something you just know when you see it. I think one of the things that is distinctive about news as opposed to journalism is that news is always, almost always, a collective enterprise. And it doesn't really mean anything outside of the interactions 
uh, that, that shape it and give it meaning. So that's the best I can do in defining news, um, especially as distinct from a different category, which would be journalism. Um, and that, that, of course, there are many different types of journalism. But in this book, I'm not talking about long-form journalism. I am talking mostly about breaking news, and it's the kind of bits of information, bits of stories that circulate in a very sort of collective Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Will Slaughter's book, Who Owns the News? We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Maria Victoria Murillo and Ernesto Calvo's book, Non-Policy Politics, Richer Voters, Poorer Voters, and the Diversification of Electoral Strategies. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branska. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>